fellowship. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. It hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink since the 10th of August, 1984. And for that, I am truly grateful. You know, um, you've just celebrated your uh, American Thanksgiving. And uh, what I would like to do, just for me personally, is to thank you, America, for giving the world Alcoholics Anonymous. It is my opinion that Alcoholics Anonymous could not have started in any other country in the world. That Bob chose Bill Wilson, and eventually Dr. Bob, in a country and environment that created a religious freedom to give us a God of your own understanding. And I'm truly grateful to America for giving the world Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Um, I would like to thank Sally and the committee for inviting me here uh, to participate in your Founders Day here in Minneapolis. I think it has been the most marvelous conference. Absolutely. Don't you think it's been a great conference? And I would like to thank my lovely hostess with the mostess, <laughs> Julie. She has been like Velcro. <laughs> and I want to thank her very much for her graciousness. Yeah. And I would like to thank Jim for taking us to the cathedral yesterday. Um, it was absolutely awesome. It was, it was beautiful. Thank you very much. And um, there's somebody else. Oh, I want to thank you for the gorgeous fruit basket. That was just lovely. Cookie, it's great to see you again. I love you. Um, and you know, it's an amazing thing. Uh, Courty, Court and I, I keep wanting to say Courty because he's so cute. I just love him. <laughs> Come here, little boy. I'll take care of you. No, you're Al-Anon, Betty Ann. <laughs> you eat his ass. Well, who knows that? <laughs> Whereas I'll just pat it and put it back on again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we spoke together at the Fellowship of the Spirit in Arizona. That was wonderful. And it was great to be with Mickey again. And I really love Betty Ann's talk very, very much because... You know, how the family has seen it and listened to the, the, the agony that they go through as well as it was really special. And Kirsten, our little uh, Alateen speaker, and I've just, you know, this is a really A conference. I go to a lot of conferences, and sometimes I wonder if I'm a, an Addictions Anonymous conference. Uh, you know, I don't even, but this has been a true Alcoholics Anonymous conference, and I'm really grateful for that. Thank you. Um, you, can, you can probably hear that I'm not an American. And you can probably hear that I'm not a Canadian. Um, I was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and my parents were Irish. And that's, that's a terrible dilemma, being Irish born in Scotland. You know, my old grandfather used to say, just because you're born in a stable doesn't mean you're a horse, you know. And uh, uh, being Irish born in Scotland was very confusing because half of you wants to drink all the time and the other half doesn't want to pay for it. The other thing about being Irish born in Scotland is I felt like a leprechaun in a Presbyterian church. 
You know, it's like I was born looking for magic and there wasn't any. Um, there wasn't any drinking allowed in my home, but my old grandfather, who was a coal miner, a very brilliant coal miner, he used to take my mother and her brother around all the mines in Scotland and they would quote Shakespeare and do little, pray, uh, little plays. He was a fantastically brilliant man and a very humble man. And he taught me to read before I was four and he used to take me to the library and, and I just loved him because my father had gone to sea and I didn't see much of him. And my grandfather was my hero. And, um, but every Friday and Saturday night he'd get dressed and washed and go to the, the bar, the Scottish bar. And every Friday and Saturday night he'd come staggering down the street from east to west, the way the drunk walks. <laughs> and all the neighbors were behind the curtains laughing at my hero. And my granny was behind her curtain with a rolling pin and a rosary. <laughs> the two staples of the Irish household. She was an untreated Al-Anon. She used to beat the you-know-what out of him um, because she didn't understand. And nobody understood, and I didn't understand. My hero. He's my hero. He's my giant even though he was only five foot three. He's my giant. And, and, um, and here was this, this, this liquor um, um, degrading him and, and, and making him into something he wasn't. And I said to myself, I will never drink. I will never have my family waiting behind curtains with rolling pins for me. I'll never drink. And that was my resolution. And my old grandfather used to say to me when we were walking up to church on a Sunday morning, he used to say to me, I won't do it again, princess. I won't touch that drink again. And he meant it. As I meant it and was to say to my own children, time after time, time's out of mind. I won't do it again. You know, I have something a lot of alcoholics have, although you will never hear Al-Anon give us any credit for it. And that is I had a high IQ. <laughs> a lot of alcoholics have high IQ. But the only thing a high IQ did for me is I never completed anything I ever started. I got bored very quickly. Anyway, because of this high IQ, I was sent to a convent to be educated by the psychopathic nuns. <laughs> and I, I used to think it was the nuns that screwed me up, you know. But let me tell you what I'm going to try and explain to you today. And I tried to do a little of it yesterday. My mother unbeknownst to her, gave birth to two in one. She gave birth to two personalities inside one body. You see, it is, I believe that I was born with the illness of alcoholism. It says in the big book that some of us are born that way. And I was one of such to be born that way. And what is the illness of alcoholism and how does it manifest before you have a drink? You see, I wish that someone had gone to my mother, God rest her soul, when I was born, and said to her, Mrs. G, you've given birth to an alcoholic. Sad but true. She's going to be really weird. So put a little liquor in her bottle, and you'll kind of calm her down, and she'll get, you, she'll get a little normal living, and so will you for a while. And then she'll cross the invisible line, take her to AA and everything will be well. But nobody ever told my mother that. So I was born, and from when I could think, people were telling me that I was bizarre. 
I had no problem with when it said in the big book that the problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind because people were always looking at me and saying, there's something seriously wrong with your head. <laughs> and I hadn't had a drink yet. And my poor mother, from when I was young, she used to pretend to be reading a paper and I'd be sitting over here or there and she'd be reading this paper and she'd be looking at me like this. So, I, so she didn't see me, so I didn't see her looking at me. And I used to say to her, what are you looking at? She'd say, I don't know where you came from. <laughs> and if she doesn't know, who knows? You know. What was going on inside of me was a great feeling of isolation and a great feeling of loneliness and a great feeling of being different. From I was able to say to myself, I am, and admit that I am a separate entity to my mother and everything else, I felt different. If you were to ask me what is the start of the alcoholism in the alcoholic before he drinks, what are the feelings? I would say to you that they are feelings of being less than, feelings of being somehow inadequate, feelings of being having no self-esteem or having been created less than. It's a very complex thing. And what that does is eventually it turns around into feelings of grandiosity. And I remember when I was very young and was acting out and being a little odd, my family used to say to me, everybody's not going to love you, you know. <laughs> and I used to say, why not? They said, because it's just not how life is. And I began to get very upset about that. So when people showed signs of not loving me, I started to beat them up. I became hostile. And being in a convent, it doesn't sit well when you're beating people up. <laughs> By the time I was 15, I had all of these personality traits that were sitting there waiting for the drink that would have given me some ease and comfort. But I didn't want to drink. And I was also, I had the morals of an alley cat. You know, I just did. I was very, I just didn't have any morals. I mean, I was lying, cheating, stealing long before I ever drank, you know. And um, anyway, at 15, they were throwing me out of the convent for fighting. And the old mother superior came and she, um, because the teachers wouldn't teach me, she had me sit outside her office. And there was a sign up in the wall and she said to me, if you read that sign and ingest it, it might do something for your measly little life. And I looked at this sign and I memorized it. And it said, of courtesy it is much less than courage of heart our holiness, but in my walks to me it seems that the grace of God is in courtesy. And way back then I wanted nothing to do with courtesy and I wanted nothing to do with the grace of God. But when I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, you extended that great courtesy to me. And I got here through the grace of God. So what she told me came true. I spent some years just wandering and being bored. I went into nursing, I got bored with nursing, I got bored with everything I ever tried. And that is why it is not an asset to have a high IQ. And eventually I went to London, England, and I was very angry with the English because I thought that they had done the Irish and the Scots out of everything that we'd ever had. And um, that's all gone from me now, but I did spend some time being anti-English. And um, so I, I decided I was going to get some of what they, they owed me, and I went and I joined British Airways. And I was based in London, England, and I was looking good. I had on the British Airways uniform, and I looked like I had it together, and I was uh, looking good. But inside, I was beginning to fragment. I'd spent 21 years of sucking it up. 
and trying to go around in a world that I felt I did not belong in. And it was becoming too much for me. And I went to two psychiatrists and I was having panic attacks, just like Bill Wilson. This is a manifestation of some of us, just some of us, the alcoholism that starts before we take the drink, the alcoholic personality. You see, I have a completely different personality to a pure drug addict. We are completely different. As an alcoholic personality, I, am, I have all of these things that, 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 as Bill says, it's a certain nervous disorder. It's a certain feeling of being less than, of wanting to be number one because you feel inferior. It is all of these things that are completely different and separate apart from. And that is very important to remember because Alcoholics Anonymous is not a cure-all for everything. We can kill people by giving them the wrong program in here. So what happened is I had all of these things going on and I thought, what the hell am I going to do? I went to two psychiatrists. I told them how I was feeling. And they looked at me the way people have been looking at me all my life. Sort of a, what is that, you know? And um, they said, you're Irish for God's sake. As if to say, you're all a little crazy. And you know, they weren't far wrong, because in my house, <coughs> I have an aunt who can be sitting having a cup of tea, and all of a sudden she freezes in time. And people who've never seen this phenomena before will come and say, what happened to her? And my family says, she's just away. She'll soon be back. <laughs> so there I am, sucking it up, trying to survive. And I think that, you know what, if I get married, I'll be well. I met a beautiful Jamaican man who came from an old rum family. I met him in London, England, and married him. I married a man who was a nice man, a very dignified man. <clears throat> he married a figment of my imagination. <clears throat> so we went to live in Kingston, Jamaica, and I had everything I could ever want. I had maids and a gardener and my, my own BMW and um, um, we had a, a home in the country and a home in Kingston and uh, after the first year my first son was born and um, that should have been the happiest time in my life because I was married, I loved somebody, I had a beautiful life and now I had this little boy who was so beautiful and I looked at him and I thought, oh God, he's so beautiful and I, I felt a love come inside of me that I'd never felt before. And yet, just after he was born, I thought I was going insane. I thought, I'm going to fragment into a million pieces. And they brought a doctor to me, and the doctor offered me Valium. And a friend of mine came, and she said, have a drink. I said, I don't want a drink. She said, try it. And I drank that drink. And I drank another drink. And I don't know if it was the second drink or the third drink. But for the first time in my life, I had the sense of ease and comfort that Dr. Silkworth talks about in the big book. I had that sense of normality. Dr. Silkworth said for some people, it's the only normal living they'll ever know. My skin fit. That's what happened. I felt at ease in a universe. It was like you had given me the missing part of some piece of DNA that had been left out of me that would have made me a normal human being. I felt normal. And when something makes you feel that good, you'll drink every day. And I immediately drank on a daily basis. Jamaica has 151 proof rum. <laughs> it is beautiful. <laughs> 
You drink that 151 proof rum and it goes all the way down your toes. You know, alcohol is the ability to go down deep inside of me and still the madness and the blackness and whatever else is going on in my soul. Alcohol is the ability to take me and put me right there. You know where there is. There is no there. It is an illusion. And there comes a time when we can never get there again. But we keep trying. We keep trying. So I drank every day and I had an amazing tolerance. And after four years of drinking like that, my second son was born. And uh, I'm so sorry to say that by the time he was born, I certainly was a chronic alcoholic. I know nothing about social drinking. I'm so sorry that these things happened to my little boys um, because I just loved them with every fiber of my being. But I was such a hopeless alcoholic. And now what is happening to me is I'm also having a personality change. You see, I was such an alcoholic that I could never have said to myself, you know what, you're pregnant with this little boy. You mustn't drink so much. I would love to have had that said to me or even said to myself, but nobody knew how much I drank and I had to drink to live. Otherwise, I would have fragmented into a million pieces. That's how I felt. And, um, and that can be, we can be accused of being immoral when things like that happen. But it was nothing to do with that. It was to do with keeping myself together when I knew otherwise I would, I would die. And um, then what happened is that I started going to the country club and having a change of personality, which means once upon a time I would go to the country club and I would act well. And I would say, you know, have, because I was drinking, I was able to mix and mingle. I could never do that before I drank. Now the alcohol had made me feel at ease and I could be uh, magnanimous and um, listen to you and listen to your story. And um, now I go to the country club, I have a couple of drinks, and I want to smash people's face in, you know. It's just, uh, it's just one of those things. I'm having the personality change again, and, uh, and I'm beginning to dislike everybody and hate people, and I have no control over what I do. And my husband and his family, they took me aside and they said, you know, you are shaming our family name. Uh, we, this name has been here for hundreds of years in Jamaica. We don't know what's wrong with you. And my husband called, called my mother and he said, there's something seriously wrong with your daughter. And my mother said, there was always something wrong with her, dear. <laughs> so anyway, they, um, they got the maid, Gloria. My, my maid was named Gloria. And um, they said to Gloria, um, Gloria used to go to the Jumping for Jesus meetings at the Baptist church. And uh, the family said, take her to the, the, the church and see if she can get a little. Because I didn't believe in God. You know, I'd married into a Roman Catholic household. I was born Roman Catholic, but I didn't believe in God. I'd thrown him away when I was very young. And they said, well, take her to these meetings. So they used to, Gloria used to take me. And let me tell you, um, I was the only one in that room that had 151 proof rum in my uh, bloodstream. And I used to jump pretty high, I'll tell you. I mean... <laughs> I like to think that I showed them some new moves, you know. But, uh, and I was the only white person there, but they made me feel welcome. That's the thing about the Jamaican people. They made me feel welcome always, and I was treated well. And um, I think they knew I was one brick short of a load and had great um, sympathy. So anyway, it didn't work. And um, eventually, in Jamaica, there is a group of people called Rastafarians. And Rastafarians don't drink. They dislike alcohol entirely. Um, but they, um, they, they, they pray from the Old Testament. 
And uh, unfortunately, they smoke a lot of pot. Um, but that's part of their religion. So I went up into the mountains and I listened to these people and I was looking for something spiritual and they were reading from the Old Testament. And some of them knew me and because um, my husband was such a respected man and I could go anywhere in the island. And they said to me, Mary, come try a little sense of me, oh, your man. Look how the liquor's making your eyes red. And I used to say to them, I don't want nothing that's going to screw up my brain. I'll stick to liquor. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, I used to watch them. And way back then, I saw something that we're having a lot of problems with in Alcoholics Anonymous today. In Alcoholics Anonymous today, we are having a lot of problems with drug addicts coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not talking about dual addicts. I'm talking about pure drug addicts who are coming here and, seeing, and being brought here erroneously. As Bill Wilson said in a pamphlet called Problems Other Than Alcohol, there is no way to make a non-alcoholic addict into an AA member. If you try to do that, you will kill them eventually. Because there will come a time after 10 or 15 years of giving service because they don't have a drunk story, so they get into service. And giving service for 10 or 15 years, one day they'll walk out of here and they will take an overdose because they don't belong. We are not a cure-all for everything here. And it is, um, it is wrong on our part and great lack of humility to pretend to be, you know. And also he said that what will happen to AA is it will fall apart without a singleness of purpose because we have to keep this for alcoholics. But anyway, I didn't know all this then, so I went up there and I watched them and they'd roll this big spliff and it was so big you couldn't even see their face. <laughs> and they used to go, I just want to mellow out, man. Have a little vision. And they'd lie down and meditate. That's not me. I'm different. When I drink, I want action. <laughs> when I drink, I want justice. When I drink, I want love. <laughs> I will eventually end up lying down whether I want to or not. I'm not looking for a relaxing. I was born wired for sound. If you're an alcoholic of my type, then you know what it is to be shaken when you haven't had anything, you know. People used to say to me, sit down for God's sake, and I hadn't had a drink yet. I drink and it calms me down. It coats my nerve endings so I can have a little normal living for a little while. That's what alcohol does for me. Anyway, in the end, what happened is nothing worked, and I divorced my husband, and I took my two sons, and uh, nobody knew what a hopeless alcoholic I was. They knew I was a bad act. They knew I was this, that, that, and um, nobody could stop me from taking those two children off the island. They were nine and five, my poor little boys. I never physically abused them, but I am a, an alcoholic mother, and uh, I took them to um, uh, a country, Canada. You know, I kind of found Canada the week Columbus discovered America. You know, I was really looking for something else. But um, I'm so grateful to Canada because I found sobriety. And my sons, um, I'd be waking up in the morning and I couldn't pick up my drink because I was shaking so bad. And I realized I had a serious Valium deficiency. So I got a job as a pharmaceutical rep. <laughs> and, uh, and then my children would see me and I would come home. My children, alcoholism took away my children's innocence and they'd never touched a, a drop of alcohol because I used to bring people home because I didn't want to leave them. I was worried about them. And I don't know, it was a terrible, terrible time. 
Anyway, I got very, very ill and lost that job and, not, and I knew my little boys were suffering and um, I decided I was going to go back to Jamaica. And I went back to Jamaica and the children's father asked if he could have them for a week. And they were gone for 13 years. And Alcoholics Anonymous hasn't healed the crack in my heart. The crack in my heart will never go away. That I lost my children for that time. You see, that is a terrible thing about this illness. It is such a dreadful illness. These two little boys who I loved so deeply and who meant the world to me. And yet I had to drink and be irresponsible. Of course it was better they were taken away, but try telling my heart that. Intellectually, you may accept that when you get sober, but try telling your heart. And um, I had my first suicide attempt in December 79 in Kingston, Jamaica. I took two bottles of Valium and a couple of bottles of 151 proof rum, enough to kill a horse. Alcoholics don't die easy. We're hard to dead. When someone says to me, Mary, I know if I drink again, I'll be dead, I'll say, you wish. <laughs> <laughs> you wish. Some of us live forever drinking. And um, they, took, they, they took me up to hospital, they pumped out my stomach. And the psychiatrist came and said to me that morning, he said uh, something that was um, intellectually correct, very observant and definitely relevant to my position. The psychiatrist said to me, you mustn't do that anymore. <laughs> my, my worst remember when, although I had many other things to go through, but in retrospect, you see, when, as a chronic alcoholic woman, I want someone to go through the night with me. I don't want a normal drinker to go through the night with me. I want a chronic alcoholic like me, although I don't know I'm a chronic alcoholic. So what happened was I was living in an old rundown hotel in Kingston, Jamaica. If there's anybody here who was a tourist in Jamaica in 1980, I'd like to make amends. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what happens is I find someone who drinks like me. When him and I drink together, things become possible. When him and I drink together, we will get our children back, or we will get our wife back, or we will get our home back, or we will get our dignity back, or we will become a part of the human race again, whatever. And him and I eventually have a few drinks, and with every drink, he looks better to me. And I look real good to him. And then him and I wander off into the enchanted cottage. The only thing is the sun comes up. The pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization of being with a stranger one more time. And on one such morning, I was walking out this old rundown hotel, and a car passed by with my ex-husband and his new wife and my two sons, as if it was prearranged. And my ex-husband came to me and said if I didn't leave the island, he would kill me. And he gave me $3,000. And I went to Miami, and I got a little apartment, and I'd drink and pass out, and they'd steal my furniture. And I'd drink and pass out, and they'd steal my clothes. And I'd drink and pass out, and they take that which I had to give and that which I did not have to give. And I ended up living on Skid Row at the bottom of Lincoln Road on Miami Beach and selling my blood to buy liquor. And that is where alcohol took me. And I didn't ever mean to be there. And I don't know how I got there. 
but I know there was no place else for me to be. No place else. My nickname on schedule was Ugly, because I was ugly. I would stay awake at night and sleep in the day. I would panhandle, and I remember sometimes I was shaken so bad by the time I got enough money to go to the liquor store that I would throw it all over the counter because I couldn't hand it to the man. And people would look at me with absolute disgrace in their eyes. And I wanted to say to them, I used to be somebody. I used to have children. I used to have a husband. I used to have a home. I didn't mean for this to happen to me. But that's not what, they're not interested in that. They're interested that you smell bad and that you don't have any willpower and they don't know, they don't, you don't even, be, you shouldn't even be living in this planet. And especially if you've lost your children. That is why my great love and dedication for Alcoholics Anonymous is here. You know, I'm often accused of being rigid about AA. Oh, I'm not. I want everybody to get well. But you see, there's no road there from where I'm coming from to here. There is no road. I was beyond human aid. There was a bench warrant out for my arrest in Dade County. I panhandled off an old woman who used to live in Jamaica, who now lived in Fort Lauderdale, and she contacted my family. And um, they came, and they got me away. I went back to Canada. And in Canada, I started going into the mental institutions um, because I was so insane. And all I used to scream for my children. I used to scream for my children. I could not believe I could wake up in the morning and not see my little boy's face. And I might never see them again. So I became crazy when I drank. And I became violent. And I got into a lot of trouble. And they used to take me in a straitjacket up to the mental institutions. Sometimes they'd take me in the fetal position. And it just, sometimes I'd just go willingly. And they'd medicate me and give me all kind of diagnosis. And they didn't know it was a broken heart and alcoholism. Sometimes I tried to be a schizophrenic because I liked the medication. <laughs> and being an alcoholic, we can pass for anything we want to. You know? Uh, sometimes I'd be the, there used to be a schizophrenic in there every time I went in, and him and I would walk together, and he had great energy. And I'd say, well, if I keep walking with him, because he liked me, I was the only one he liked, and uh, we had a great communication together, so I'd be walking with him, and the psychiatrist, Dr. Milliken, he'd say, psst, Mary, you're not a schizophrenic. We've decided you're not a schizophrenic. So they give me another diagnosis and give me some more medication. And then give me another diagnosis and give me, I can be anything you want me to be. Because I don't want to be an alcoholic, I want to be insane. And in the end, what happened was I was living in the mental institution, getting oblivion 22 hours a day, compliment of the government. That is the life I wanted. I wanted 22 hours of oblivion. And there's a lot of us like me in the mental institution who are alcoholics. You know us very well. We have the shuffle because we're so medicated we can't walk properly. We have packs of cigarettes in our hot little hands. 
and uh, we're selfish and self-centered. <laughs> and the only excitement we ever have is when we drop our cigarette butts on our paper slippers and we're too drunk to do anything. <laughs> Except watch it burn, you know. The last time I was there, I was taken by the police and I was in a lot of trouble. And the psychiatrist, when I was getting out of there, I had to go to court. And the psychiatrist said he had written something to try and keep me out of prison. And he let me read it. And it had three diagnoses. Chronic alcoholic, abnormal personality, and depressive. And those are all true. Those are all true. And one night I was sitting drinking myself sober. You know what that feels like? There's a lot of real alcoholics in here, I can see that. <laughs> My kind of people. And I picked up the phone and I phoned AA. And um, a man called Stan came who was a Metty. And he had 29 years sobriety. And he sat and he told me his story. And he asked me to tell him a little bit of mine. And he said to me something that nobody had ever said to me before. He said, I think you're one of us. And because I wanted to be terminally unique, I said, Stan, I know I'm an alcoholic, but I'm also nuts. I have a psychiatric report, and I showed it to him. It says I have to live on medication for the rest of my life because I have an abnormal personality. And he says something that to this day I love because it made me feel a part of. He says, Mary, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous is like 12 adjustable wrenches. They fit any nut that comes through the door. <laughs> I didn't get on with my first sponsor, so I got drunk, but I got drunk because I wanted to get drunk. I had a slip. Bill Wilson called it a slip. He's my man, he's my hero. I call it a slip. I had a slip at four months so sobriety. And um, that night of my last drink, please God, which was at the 9th of August, 1984, some people from AA came and took me to a meeting. You see, even although we are drunk, Sometimes we need to be taken to a meeting. And that was a great love and kindness that these alcoholics in Edmonton had for me. They told me I was in such bad shape that I was wa uh, shaking so much that strangers were waving back at me. <laughs> <laughs> and that night, a little girl from AA spent the night with me, and the next day she said to me, I'm going to leave, you know, because you're a loser. And I only stick with winners in Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I go, I'm going to ask you to kneel down and say the third step prayer. And I said to her, I don't kneel for nothing. And then something said, think of your children's eyes. Oh, how those eyes used to haunt me. Those beautiful, big, brown eyes. that used to look to look for a mummy that wasn't there. And I thought of those eyes and that longing I had seen in those eyes. And I held her hand and I knelt down and I said the third step prayer. On the kitchen floor, God, I offer myself to thee. And from that moment to this, I have had no desire for a drink. By some unmerited gift of grace I was given, I have had no desire for a drink. Does that mean I'm well? I don't think so. 
There was something seriously wrong with me before I drank. And there's something seriously wrong with me now I'm not drinking, you see. I had gotten to the place it talks about in the big book. When I couldn't stay sober, and yet I couldn't drink either. And that's a hell of a place to be. And when I'm not drinking, I'm crazy, man. Crazy. But now, something's happening to me. I got a sponsor immediately, and she was wonderful. And the old men in, in AA were wonderful to me in Edmonton, Alberta. They used to give me great words of wisdom. They used to say, Mary, you know, they used to come and give me a libido check. They say, how's your libido? I said, it's gone. You know. <laughs> and then they used to say to me, and my sponsor used to say, Mary, if you want sex in your first year, have it, but have it alone. It's a lot safer. <laughs> and they used to say to me, you know, get a big book, get a sponsor, get active. And they used to say to me, Mary, you might never get your children back. But this will be your family. And I never did get my children back. But I got two big men back. And I'll tell you about that. I used to go up and down to Jamaica to make amends because when I was drinking, my children used to see things that they shouldn't have seen. And when I'd wake up in the morning, I'd say to them, you didn't see that. You were dreaming. I made my sons question their reality. And I had to go back and go to them and tell them these things. And say to me, please talk to me about everything that I've ever done to hurt you. And make deep amends. I go up and down in Jamaica all the time doing that. And uh, I'm grateful to be able to do it. And I got very active in AA from the get-go. And Bill Wilson was my higher power until I could find a God of my own understanding. And eventually I was about 10 months sober and the old timer said to me, Mary, you got to find a God. You can't stay sober on AA and light bulbs and Bill Wilson. I said, Bill Wilson's my man. They said, yeah, but he's not here and he's not God. So I went around looking for God. <laughs> and one day in Edmonton, Alberta, I'm at the Alano Club at a noon meeting. And there's this old gal standing there and she's the most spiritual woman I've ever heard. And yet she came into Alcoholics Anonymous with two black eyes and a fistful of torn money. And she was 20 years sober, and she doesn't mind me saying this. She's given me permission to say this. I sat there and I listened to this woman singing about her God and how much she loved him and loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And yet she was saying things like, as a drunken woman, I never went to bed with an ugly man, but I sure woke up with a few. <laughs> she says, but I don't do it anymore, I don't do it anymore, because I am a lady in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, who is this God you have? I'm looking for a God. She says, Mary, my God's called Harold. I said, Harold? I was expecting something like Zeus, <laughs> something magnificent. She says, well, you know that prayer, our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. She was pulling my leg. <laughs> but she helped me, and she made me laugh. And today I have a God of my own understanding. I'm so grateful. I truly believe that God brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous so I could find my God. Um, the old time used to say no relationships for a year, but for you it's two, because you have a propensity for getting married, which is true. I got married with alarm and regularity. I mean, I love getting married. I just don't have any follow-through, you know. <laughs> 
So anyway, um, I'd moved to Toronto. I had a great sponsor, Rini, who's now almost 50 years sober, still active in AA. I was very active in AA, and I was working. I had a job. I was self-supporting through my own contributions. Um, my son had been up for a year schooling in Canada, and I'd seen him, and he was back in Jamaica, and life was good. I'm two years sober. Is there any newcomers here? Okay, you know when we say no relationships for a year? I'm telling you, you can't have any for two. <laughs> or maybe more. Here's what happened to me. And, the, and it's you I'm talking to. And it's also people who have been around a long time. Because the thing that can get us back into the neurosis of alcoholism, because that's what it is. It's neurosis. The thing that can affect our emotions and make us want to kill ourselves or go mad or kill somebody else, even with 20 years sobriety, is love. Or relationship, you know. I mean, I was saying yesterday, I have a sponsee, and I've seen her at the meeting, meeting this guy that she says she loves, and the two of them are barely dry out of detox, and when they talk to each other, they're still not sober enough that they can't stop shaking. The two of them are standing looking at each other like this, you know, but you can see the lust coming out the eyes, you know. <laughs> you know, they're like fired for sound, you know, just waiting to connect, you know. Anyway, I'm two years sober. I'm two years sober and I'm sitting in a room at a meeting on a Sunday morning and I look down the table and I see him <laughs> with these big blue eyes. And I just know that God has sent me my reward. <laughs> my John. And, you know, in AA, like attracts like. Now, at this stage of my sobriety, I'm two years sober, and I'm an AA Nazi. I know everything. I can quote everything in the big book. They used to call me Bill Wilson's granddaughter in Toronto. <laughs> but I'm still sick, you know, because I haven't had enough of a personality change. You know, it takes a long, long time, this personality change, and it's incremental. But anyway, I don't know that. I just think I'm an AA. I'm, well, I'm spiritual, and I'm, John is five years sober. And he's very attracted to me, so you know there's something seriously wrong with John. <laughs> you know, I got, the other day up where I live, I met a guy I hadn't seen for 15 years, and he says, Mary, we were all waiting for you to get a little saner, and then we were going to hit a hit on you, but you never seem to get there. He <laughs> 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 says, and then you married John, but anyway... So anyway, yes, like attracts like. That's what you'll find out. This is what I found out. Until I have a personality change, a spiritual awakening, the change of personality is spoken about in Appendix 2 of the big book. Until I fully get that, I'm going to attract the sickest part of me on the outside, like a hook. I'm going to attract it, and it's going to be there in living form. And I'm going to think it's the love of my life, and it's going to screw me up, because that is the sickest part of me. And the same thing happens for the man. He's going to attract his sickest part of him, and it's going to embody itself in me or in somebody else. So John and I fell in love. And um, we, when, you, when you fall in love and you're new in AA, you know, two years sober, and you're full of vim and vigor, you still go to a lot of meetings, and you have on your peacock feathers, and you strut your stuff. And someone asks you to read how it works, and you're at a crowded room. And you can just see you and him walking off into the sunset under the circle and the triangle. <laughs> under God's will. 
My sponsor came and said to me, don't get married because you're an emotional retard. <laughs> and I knew she was jealous. I knew she was jealous. So John and I eloped. <laughs> we got married in Miami. And um, here's what happens in the close proximity of marriage when you haven't had the personality change to the degree that you need to be a normal human being. Uh, not normal. We'll never be normal. But to be, a, to be a little weller. When you're both still sick, even although you love each other, in the close proximity of marriage, one by one, the peacock feathers start dropping off. And in the end, all you have is the same two old turkeys sitting staring at one another. And that's what happened with John and I. And I got very sick, and he got very sick. And we used to ride each other and fight, and it was awful. And an old timer said, you better go and live at the YWCA and leave that marriage. Go and put yourself in with a lot of women for a while. And I hadn't stopped going to AA, but I was crazy. And I walked out in that marriage, and I went to live at the YWCA. And I knelt down, and I said, God... I left a beautiful home. It was my, my ex, John was a, is a lawyer. I had a beautiful lifestyle. And I walked out, and I was sitting at the YWCA, and I said, God, show me the way. I don't know what's good for me. You do. Show me the way, God. And I love John. John was the love of my life. And here's what happened. I got a little job. I got a little apartment, moved out, had very active in AA. I got a call from Jamaica saying my two sons were acting up. The stepmother had kicked them out. They were living with their old grandmother in Jamaica. My sponsor said, go back to the island and make amends. <laughs> make amends to the island, right? <laughs> I went back to Jamaica. I stayed with my old ex-mother-in-law and, uh, and got one of my sons off to Broward Community College and sent the other one to Europe. And I stayed on the island and I worked with the poor people and I was doing some journalism for the newspaper, the Caribbean newspaper, because I'm a, a freelance journalist. That's part of what I do. And um, I learned that. I could do that. I learned to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, and I was kicked out of school at 15. It's an amazing thing. I've had so much. And uh, then I went back to uh, Canada and John and I, my husband who I'd married, he said, let's get a legal separation. I said, sure, and I moved into the same building as him. And three days, three, I, I can't remember how, just a few days after I signed that legal separation agreement, him and I were to meet and finalize something. And I couldn't get him on the phone. And I had that intuitive thought. And I went upstairs, I still had the key to his apartment. And I put the key in the door and the door was bolted on the inside. And I had it kicked down and I found John lying on the ground. He'd had a massive stroke. And he'd been lying there for two nights and three days, according to the hospital. And he was turning purple. And it was March, and the window was open, and he was cold. And he just stood on his little shorts and lying on the ground on the parquet floor. And I held him, and I cried, and I said, God, if you let him live, I'll look after him. And um, he was in the hospital for two years. He could never speak again. He couldn't understand the spoken word. He had what you call severe global aphasia, which means it's like he woke up in China and everybody's speaking Chinese. Um, he, they said he'd never walk again, but he's a stubborn alcoholic. And he made himself walk, even although he walked with a bad limp. But his right arm was completely paralyzed. Um, and he, there was only two words he could say that he never forgot. And I won't say them from the podium, 
but basically what they mean is take a journey. It was quite funny, you know, one time we were driving back from Florida, driving through Georgia. Never forget this. And I was speeding because John wanted to go. He could, him and I could communicate. And, and um, I, I knew he wanted to go to a little wise room, so I'm speeding through Georgia. And uh, the, the police chased me and stopped me. And, um, and uh, the, the policeman comes and he says to me, um, you know, you're doing, a, I don't know what it was, let's say 90 and a 40 or something. And he says, he says, you have to be, it'll be $125, or I can't remember how much it was. I said to him, will you take a check? And I said that in all innocence. He says, no, you have to come back to the police station where there's an ATM machine conveniently located. <laughs> anyway, he was looking at my husband, and John was just sitting there, because John wanted to go to the little boy's room, and also he likes to drive fast, and he doesn't like policemen, even then. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So the, the policeman said, you know, he said to him, what's your name, sir? And I said, my husband can't speak. My husband has severe brain damage, um, you know, from a massive stroke. And he said, oh, okay. And then John says to him, take a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the prompts. I, I almost got in trouble. <laughs> You see, this is what I believe. I've made many amends. My parents were both dead. My father, when, when he retired from sea, and they just found out that my children had been taken away because I never told them. They didn't know that I was living on Skid Row. They just didn't know where I was. And my father, who'd never drank, he, ne he never drank. It was my grandfather who drank. My father, and this is a really difficult thing for me to say, my father got up one morning at 2 o'clock in the morning, or 3 o'clock, and says to my mother, I can't sleep. I'm worried about my lassie. She's the only lassie I have, and I don't know where she is, and I don't know where my grandchildren are. He says, I'm going to have a walk. And he went out and walked and dropped dead in the street. The same time I was living on the street. What kind of coincidence is that? Now, they said it was something called ischemia. Ischemia, but I think he died too of a broken heart. You know. So I, how I made a mention to my parents was I wrote them both letters. I put in there everything I'd ever done and told them how much I loved them and how well I was doing in Alcoholics Anonymous and how well my sons were doing. And I wrote Mrs. Anne Gallagher, Care of the Angels, Glasgow, Scotland, and put an airmail stamp on it. And wrote one to my daddy, uh, Mr. Richard Gallagher, Care of the Angels, Glasgow, Scotland. And I mailed them. And I can imagine some postman in Glasgow, Scotland, <laughs> saying another crazy alky making amends. <laughs> but it worked. When I had my husband, John, who was essentially a child, he was childlike, then God had given me the chance, because I'd never been a mother, I'd been drunk all the time I had my children. So I'd never been a responsible, caring human being. I'd never had to look after anybody. So God gave me John, and that was a living amends. And I'm so grateful for that. He died on October the 20th, 2001. I held him and I read him how it works. 
And then when he died, I held his body till it grew cold. And I was allowed to finish something for another human being. And I thank God for the opportunity. And all during the time he was not well, he used to still get his medallions at AA meetings and used to still go. So I'm very grateful for that. My sons came back to me when they were um, 19 and 24. And we lived together for a while in Toronto and they drove me crazy. <laughs> and then they, um, they, they, they went off to get married. My, uh, a few years ago, my eldest son, Richard, got married in uh, Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And he asked me to come out, and he asked his father to come up from Jamaica to walk my son down the aisle. And at that time, Clancy was my sponsor. And Clancy says, you've got to act right. You can think what you like, but you've got to act right. I'm going to have a spy there watching you. <laughs> so my ex-husband comes up from Jamaica with his wife and two daughters. And um, I'm walking. <laughs> he says to me, my God, you look marvelous. It, it has done wonders. We thought a leopard would never change its spots. But you look, Alcoholics Anonymous seems to have done wonderful things for you. And I'm there being my lady that I've learned to be in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm looking dignified and I'm saying, thank you, yes it is, it's wonderful, I'm so grateful. And inside I'm thinking, hey, 20 years ago I hired two gunmen to shoot your blow wall. <laughs> but I got too drunk to do it. <laughs> but my face is saying, and so do you look well, I'm very glad to see you. And that is the other personality I spoke about when I said my mother had given birth to two in one. My alcoholism is called Tessie. And she sits inside of me. And God and, and, and working the program and giving service keeps her down there. But sometimes under extreme stress, <laughs> like Friday morning at the airport, <laughs> when this girl is being a moron, Tessie comes up and tells her so. And I'm shocked. I want to say sorry about her. <laughs> it's the same thing sometimes when under great duress, she gives people the finger on the highway. <laughs> you know, she's right there. It's called Tessie. So now my son, Richard, and my daughter-in-law, Harleen, have given me two little granddaughters. One of them is called Nina. You know, my, my son Richard, he often says, Mom, we never thought we'd get you back. He says, we never thought you'd come off a of skid row. We never thought you'd come off the mental institutions. He says, you know what you've given me, Mom? You've given me hope in the human spirit and great love of God. He says, and any time I think the world's too much for me, I think about you, Mom. And he never drinks. My little granddaughter Nina is four years old. And she, I've been out there for the Christmas with the ex-husband-in-law, ex-father. Ex My little um, uh, granddaughter Nina called me the other day and she said, Sean Ma, they call me Sean Ma, which means old mother in Irish. She said, Sean Ma, I love you more than fresh vegetables. <laughs> what am I doing? I can't see this properly. All right. 
And um, my other little granddaughter out there in BC, um, Annabella, she's got me worried because she's just like me. If you look at her wrong, she'll beat you up. And she's just, she's a little midget. And she's feisty, and I love her, you know. And my son, Mark, my baby, um, he lives in Pickering, which is just outside Toronto. And he got married, and again, his father and I did the due things for him at the wedding. And he got married in a kilt in a Ukrainian Orthodox church. And he danced with me to a tune called Mama. He married a Ukrainian girl. And he gave me two little grandchildren. One is called Maya. Maya looks just like my Marky. And what I was able to do for 18 months was just look after her every day while her mom went back to work. And God gave me that chance. And the other day she called me and said to me, Sean Ma, I love you more than the sun and the moon and the stars. Will you take me to McDonald's? <laughs> and my little grandson is Aiden. He's 10 months old. Now, from whence I have come, I deserve none of this. This is so much more than I've ever deserved. I am in awe when I pick up these little children. And they love me and they've never smelt liquor on my breath. And, and I try and do whatever I can do to make amends. And sometimes it's very difficult in the nuclear family situation. Like when my little grandson was being um, um, christened the other day, and his stepmom comes up from Jamaica, and my little granddaughter calls her grandma as well. And she comes in there and she calls my son her son. And she doesn't like me. And I love her. And I gotta act well. You know, I gotta act well. And um, I had some ill health. Um, I'm better now. You know, I'm able to, whatever comes up, it's. I cannot believe some days I wake up that I haven't had a drink. I cannot believe that I can walk through this earth without a drink. It is an incredible thing to me. You see, I believe that we are the most fortunate people in the world. Because if you be an alcoholic of my type, you know that you are beyond human aid. You know there is nothing in the world could stop you from drinking. And here you come. This divine message that was given to Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob and, and this wonderful program. And I don't drink one day at a time and I become a citizen of the world. And I start becoming a good mom and a good grandma. I'm a good worker. I'm a citizen of the world. That's what I'm meant to be in this program. And I'm so grateful to be that. I'm better than I used to be, and I want to be better than I am. I want to keep continually growing and becoming the person that God wants me to be. I'll never be perfect. And also, there's a lot of people in this fellowship suffer a lot of incredible losses. Bill Wilson wrote once that Alcoholics Anonymous is nothing more than documented grief. And I remember coming into AA when I was in my early days, and this guy is a doctor, and I was sobering up with him. And six weeks, he was sober, and one of his sons was killed on a lake. 
in a mortarboard cache. And we all thought he'd drink. And this is the incredible thing. Three months later, another son was killed in a road accident. And he stayed sober. And I've seen my sponsor go through cancer. I've seen people die with dignity. I've seen people come into AA when their whole life is dropping around them because of the great love they have for here. So I want to thank you, Minneapolis, for inviting me here. It has been a great pleasure to be with you, a great honor and a privilege to be of service. <clears throat> and I'll finish with what Bill Wilson said. Bill Wilson said, Alcoholics Anonymous is not a success story. Rather, it is the chronicle of our colossal human failure. Turn to usefulness by the divine alchemy of a loving God. And thank you. <laughs>